So we are going to begin our next section in this. But before we do, I want to give you some case studies, and I want you to feel. I want you to try to get in touch with your emotions. I want you to have a visceral reaction to some of these stories. Imagine it's the first day of school, and you are getting ready to bring your six-year-old little girl to her new class. There, she is dressed in a cute pink dress. Pink ribbons are tied in two identical ponytails in her hair, and she's toting a cute pink Hello Kitty backpack. As you greet her teacher and get ready to send her off to go meet new kids in the class, you see out of the corner of your eye, one of the big kids in class points at your daughter and laughs at her Hello Kitty backpack. How do you feel? Yeah. What do you say? Do you care? Or you just say, ah, let her deal with it. It is your 10-year-old son's first day of tackle football practice. He's wearing a new pair of cleats, and he can't wait to finally play football like the heroes that he watches on TV. As you get in your car to leave him at the field, the team is lining up for tackling drills, and you notice the child that your son has to tackle looks two feet taller and 100 pounds heavier than him. How do you feel? Do you get out of your car and protect your son and tackle that boy on your own? Do you even care? Do you care? Your daughter has decided she wants to join the Marines. She's been preparing all summer to get ready for boot camp. She has a flight to Paris Island, South Carolina Recruiting Training Center. There you are driving her to the airport. She gets to the ticket gate. She grabs a ticket and she thinks, she tells you she may have made a huge mistake. How do you feel? Do you insist she doesn't go? Do you even care? Your son's at college a few states away from home. He calls you late one night telling you that classes are hard and that he doesn't think he fits in. How do you feel? Do you tell him to quit, come home? Do you care? Your child is really good at basketball. But her team requires a lot of travel. That means every Sunday, long weekends and many weeknights, she's on the road. Along with her busy school schedule, she has no time for youth group or church. Does it matter? Do you even care? Your best friend who you grew up with has decided to join you for the past month, and he sits next to you at church. After every service, he asks you about the gospel, but says he's still not sure that he believes God exists. The next week he calls you and says that he has decided to go back to the party scene because he likes sleeping in on Sunday. And he's glad God is good for you, but eh, God's just not for him. Living a true Christian life to him sounds so dull. How do you feel? Do you try to persuade him that the gospel matters? Do you even care? What do you care about? What is important enough for you to take action? What does, and here's the deepest question of all, what does true love for the other do? And you can say, ah, true love. Yes, true love. And I'm not talking about candlelight dinner. I'm not talking about romantic date kind of true love, but I'm talking about the true love that loves the other like really loves the other, treating them better than self. 
What does true love care about? That's the next question on our Thessalonians study. So if you can open up and stand with me as we read, beginning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 to 3, 5. We had some longer passages, the first two sermons. This one's a little shorter. The title of this I call True Love. Got it. It's kind of gnarly. I'll put my, you see another one? That's a bad one, right? That was the one that was on Jared's guitar. It has a string in its mouth. I'm going to put this, all right. Okay, Nathan, how are you? Welcome back. It's good to see you. He was at college away. He was the one I was writing about. Anyhow, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. You may be seated. First of all, we have to always establish contextual understanding. So the question is, what is going on and why is he saying what he's saying? Why does Paul seem so desperate? If you look at 3.1, he says, we could bear it no longer. In the NIV, he says, I can't stand it any longer. He says the same thing in 3.5. We can bear it no longer. What, what is he talking about? What is driving him crazy enough to write this letter? Because this is why he wrote this letter, because he, can he can't bear being away from the Thessalonians any longer. What's going on? So let's go to the map just to give you some context of what's happening. If you remember, this is Paul's second, second missionary journey. He goes to Macedonia. First, he landed in Philippi. That's the top right. When he was at Philippi, they went to Thessalonica. That's who this book is written to, the church that's established there. When he was in Thessalonica, some Jews were so upset, they got an angry crowd to drive Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of Thessalonica, so they went to Berea. So, while in Berea, they chased him down there too. And Silas and Timothy said, Paul, your life's not safe. So they sent him down the coast. So you see that red arrow? They went, he went down the coast. And he went all the way to Athens to get away from this angry Jewish mob. So Paul traveled to Athens by himself. Well, after he arrived in Athens, later came Silas and Timothy to catch up with them. At Athens, according to 3.1, and you can also read this in the book of Acts, chapter 16 and 17. But if you look at 3.1, it says, Therefore, 
when we could bear it no longer, that means being away from the Thessalonians, we were willing to be left behind in Athens and we sent Timothy. So Paul and Silas stayed in Athens. They sent Timothy to do kind of a reconnaissance or a, you know, checking up on them mission. So while Timothy was up back in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas went to Corinth. That's where, the, they, that's where they wrote the letter to the Thessalonians. So while in Corinth, eventually Timothy came back. They wrote this letter that you have in your hands to the Thessalonians. And they were planning on giving it back to Timothy, a co-worker with them, working for God. Back to Timothy to go back to the Thessalonians to, in a sense, pastor them. Encourage them. So that's the context. To me, the most striking thing about this letter is how intense Paul's feelings are. Like they are intense. Look at 2.17. He said, we were torn away from you. And then he writes, we have, we have more eagerly and great desire to see you face to face. The NIV puts it like this. We have an intense longing to see you. Chapter 2, verse 18, we wanted to come to you. Again and again, we wanted to come to you. Chapter 2, verse 20, you are our glory. You're our joy. Verse 3, 1, we could stand it or we could bear it no longer being away from you. Verse 3, 5, same thing. We could stare it, bear it no longer. 3, 5, I sent to find out about your faith. I want to know what's going on. And then 3, 5, again, I'm scared. I have fear for you. There's just nothing but pathos here, emotion, passion. Whenever we hear about the Apostle Paul, many thoughts, I would say, come to our mind. What was the Apostle Paul like? I think instantly people would say, well, he's a great theologian. They'd say it just like that. He was a great theologian. He was a fearless missionary. I mean, shipwrecked, whipped, beaten, stolen from. He's a strong leader. He rebuked and corrected and admonished the believers. But a tender-hearted, passionate lovers of others, something that, not, that does not quickly come to mind for Paul. But that's what he was. He was a tender-hearted, passionate lover of others. As you read this, one thing is obvious. He loves the Thessalonians. He loves them. I'm not sure. I, I don't think I've ever in my mind, in my life, met a grown-up adult male who's this open and expressive towards others, especially other men. When is the last time you heard a guy who is thinking about his friends or family say, oh, we were torn away from each other? We we're torn away. Usually that's reserved for sentiment between teenage lovers. Like That's good for teenage lovers, but not for adult males. Too sentimental. But Paul's heart has been shaped by God's heart. And because of this, he had true love, true love for the people of Thessalonica. I think we are in desperate need of this, especially we're up in this area of northern Michigan or western Michigan. I, as a cold hearted descendant of Germans with thick northern European blood coursing through my veins am not quick to show affection. I'm just not. It's not manly. 
not becoming of a guy trying to survive in this world. And, and I'm not only, a, I'm not even a hunter. Kill the deer. Kill the turkey. Shoot the turkey. Drink the blood. Spill the guts. Now that's a man. Love another? No, never. You know what's amazing? If you were to go to the signs of the times, you know, what are the signs of the times Jesus is coming back? Matthew 24, Jesus lays them out. Kingdom, a war against kingdom, but there's something in there that is terrifying. He says in Matthew 24, 10 through 12, the love of most will grow cold. That's a sign of the times. Cold, as looking it up, cold in the Greek has the idea of cold air being blown over something hot, cooling it down. To kind of keep it chill. Emotionally, hold back your emotions. It's exactly the idea of cool when we use it as an adjective. It's one of the number one adjectives we use towards things. That's cool. But that idea has someone who's not touched by the drama of life. A person above it all, not touched by anything. That's why we love our skinny models looking like angry mannequins. Or James Dean. Remember James Dean? He's just too, he's a rebel without a cause. Yeah, I don't care, man. That's, what is, what is, why? Do we like that to be about us? Why do we take selfies where we always look angry? Because we want to be above it all. We don't want to be touched by anything. Jesus said this is what people are going to be like as the world gets worse and worse. The climate of the heart is going to be like ice age. But true love is to be hot. And Paul models this hot kind of love in three ways. Number one, true love belongs to be with the other. I mean, 2.17 and 18, since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in our hearts, we endeavored to more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Intense longing in the NIV. That's a, that's a strong word. When is the last time you had intense longing to be with someone? When is the last time a man had intense longing to see another man? And please don't make, don't make everything sexual. That's the problem with our culture. It ruins everything with sexuality. We're obsessed with it. I'm talking about a real friendship. When is the last time a grown man cared enough to write a letter to another man or another person or even their son and write, dude, it's been a long, long time. I intensely miss you. Sadly, that kind of sentiment's only seen at funerals when it's too late. I know because I was, I think, too cool and too German to tell my dad how much I really, really loved him while he's still alive. And man, did I love my dad. But it would always be the shot in the arm, love you, dad, see you later. Do you know what Jesus said right before he left the earth in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again to take you to be with myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wants to be with us. 
Paul says here at the end of verse 17, he wants to see the Thessalonians face to face. Face to face. There's something about seeing someone face to face. Turning off our phones and placing them down and looking in the eyes of someone else. And if Paul can't, he still thinks about those he loves. He says, I'm torn away, meaning he had to be torn out. He was kicked out of Dodge real quick. But he said, even though I was torn away in person, not, I wasn't in heart. One commentator writes, true friends are never absent in the ultimate sense. That's a great phrase. But are you? Is this, or are you the type of person who would rather be left alone? Do you long for the desperado life out on your own, lost in the woods, no need for people, no need for church, being a lone wolf, a cowboy, or a hermit? Do you live by the motto, live and let live, or better yet, more and more people are saying, live and let die. Who cares about the concerns of others? It's their own, it's their own fault. If I could be honest, I'm growing cold. Just this last week, my wife and I went to drive to see my son in Chicago at college, and there sitting in the cafeteria was my nephew, my nephew. He was eating with a friend, and I said to myself internally, ah, he looks like he wants to be left alone. I won't interrupt him. And my wife, my good wife, who loves people enough to get involved, said, let's go sit next to him. My nephew, for crying out loud. I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? I don't want to engage. What's wrong with most of us, especially when it comes to loving others in the body of Christ? We are the body of Christ, unified by the Spirit, fellow inheritors of eternal life, and yet we treat each other, for the most part, like strangers. I call it the foyer line syndrome. People will line up to talk to the pastor in the foyer. I think because they know the pastor is supposed to be nice to them. But while they're waiting to talk to him, they don't even talk to each other. Maybe one of the reasons the pastor has to counsel so much because no one wants to get involved in each other people's lives. They'd rather be left alone. Why is this? I think Paul gives us one big reason because there's somebody I call the great divider who's real. He lives among us, where he dwells, not just in our midst, but in the world. Look at verse 18. We wanted to come to you. Paul says, I wanted to again and again, but Satan hindered us, separated us. He does not want us to be together. Jesus said to Simon Peter before he betrayed them, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Satan wants, sifting means to scatter and separate. So Peter would be easy pickings to devour and destroy. Satan wants to devour us by dividing and conquering. And later on in 3.5, Paul has fear that he is going to weasel his way in there and cause really Thessalonians to be in despair. That's how he divides. He wants to divide you from everybody else in here and to discourage you. And if he can get us hating one another... Oh boy, and not caring, separating us, believing the lies that our malice tells us, that other people are thinking about us, he's one. 
How many times have you read a text or an email that someone has sent you, and after you read it, you thought terrible thoughts about the intentions of the other? Man, they're so mean and they hate me. But then when you go to them face to face and ask them, why were you so mean to me in that text? They'll you often say, what are you talking about? I, I, I was just asking you a question. I wasn't accusing you. True love is patient. True love keeps no record of wrongs. It is not easily angered. It always trusts. It always trusts. It always trusts. Always trusts. Who do you need to forgive face to face who you're harboring bitterness towards? Thank you, Jared, for leading us this morning. It was great. Who do you need to write a letter to to say how much you miss them? Who do you need to go see? Love one another as I have loved you. Second thing, true love wants what's best for the other. Now this is an amazing part. Like when you really think what Paul's writing here, we just personally, we don't think like this. Here's, if, I, if I had asked the question, what is the best thing for us, for you, for somebody else? What is the best thing? Not the good thing, not the fun thing, not the happy thing. But the best thing is the best thing for us having a lot of money. I ask it honestly because we spend most of our time trying to get it. Is the best thing for us recreating, going on vacations, cruises, drinking beer at a cabin, and buying stuff to play games? Fun, fun, fun. Or is the best thing for us having a healthy body? I mean, we're kind of obsessed with our bodies these days. But Timothy, in Timothy, he read, Paul writes, while bodily training is of some value, it is. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you see, Paul knows what's the best thing for us. And he wants that best thing for those he loves. It should always be that way. What is best is what we should want for one another. It makes sense. If I really love somebody, I should want what's best. What does he point to in 2.19? Listen to 2.19. For what is our hope and our joy of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glorious joy. What is he saying? He says, he says the same thing in 2.19 in a different way in Colossians. See if you can pick it out, what it is. Colossians 1.28 and 29. Christ Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. What is the best thing? To present everyone perfect in Christ. That's what he's saying here. I can't, I can't wait for Jesus coming to show him you because you're my joy. Paul is saying, you want to know what's best? It's being prepared to meet Jesus at your best when he comes again. We just don't think like that. Paul, at the time of this writing, believed that Jesus was coming back soon. He had this, Paul always lived in the imminency of Christ, that he's going to return soon. And because of that, he believed he was going to come at any time. And so he wanted those he loved to be ready to meet him. 
Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 16, 27. Listen to how Jesus says it. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. I mean, imagine that. He's going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done, as if this is a big deal. Think about this. When Jesus comes... There will be some people who we have both personally helped to know him and we have helped prepare them to be ready to see Jesus. As one writer said, it's called being present in the presence. Paul's joy is focused on the future certainty of both he and the Thessalonians being together in the presence of Christ at his return. Think about someone you have been mentoring in Jesus and then all of a sudden... You both are together at his coming. I'm trying to imagine this. I'm like, see, Ginger, Joseph, Geo Jasmine, I may not have been the best dad, but I didn't lie to you. Do you see that? Jesus is everything I told you he'd be. We're telling my sister, Gina, I told you. See, I told you. Or Jesse Kaler, see, it's better than we both hoped. That's why we're both in this ministry, because it's better than we hoped. Or, or Kent City Baptist, look, everything we preached about up here and worked for and declared, it's all true. It's all true. Isn't that the best thing? He uses the word crown. You're our hope. That means we, we have our fulfillment in you being Perfect in Christ, you're our joy and you're our crown. And this word he uses for crown doesn't mean a ruling crown, but a laurel wreath of victory. One of the most, I would say, it's, it's a, a, after the games, we did it, we gained victory. One of the most fantastic, powerful moments in the Olympics is when, basically, when a victor's crowned and they play their national anthem, especially if somebody you're rooting for is up on that podium, a number one spot. And down comes the American flag. You can hear the national anthem played behind. And just tears are flowing because everything, all the years of work, effort, and hope is realized in that moment. And what Paul is saying, when Jesus comes and we see his face and he sees ours, it'll all be worth it. We won. Isaiah, he's actually, Paul's quoting from Isaiah in Isaiah 62, 1 through 3. Listen to how Isaiah talks about it. Isaiah, he writes with eloquence and poetry, and he's very passionate. He writes, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. And then every time you hear the word you, put in my people, or even put your name, the nations will see your, your name, or my people's righteousness, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. I put it in my own words. Here's what I think he's saying. Oh, my dear people, how you will finally shine. People who are used to clay feet and calluses, we'll all be brand new, unblemished, unpolluted, unsoiled, and unspotted. No more shame and dirt smeared across your face. You won't need to make excuses for your lack any longer. No need to hide your failings or put on a false front. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, you'll be changed, shining as bright as the sun before the Son of God Himself. 
your king, the one you love. What a day that will be. Being with Jesus at our best is the best thing for us. That is why Paul says in 3.2, he's sending Timothy back, co-working the gospel of Christ, to establish you and exhort you. Keep in your faith. Hang in there. Keep going. Keep going. Number three, true love is honest. So in a sense, while we wait, we still need to hear the honest truth. What does it mean to tell people the honest truth? If you truly love someone, you won't lie to them. You'll be open and clear about the way things really are. But what happens if the truth is hard to take? Do you still tell the truth? Or do you tell people you love sweet lies so you'll make them feel good and there'll be no conflict? You just tell them nice lies. Do you even care about telling them the truth anymore? For instance, here's some examples where I think the average Christian would rather not answer than tell the truth. Here's some questions. Is Jesus the only way to God the Father? What about the Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim that doesn't accept Jesus, but they're still good people? Won't God accept them? I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. What if they don't believe? Will they go to hell? And does hell actually exist? Ah, we're still deciding that. Let's not worry about it. I want you to have a good life. Is a person sinning when they're sleeping with someone they are not married to? That's complicated. Is a person sinning when they are practicing homosexuality? Well, don't go there. How can faith alone be enough to be saved when my grandmother has gone to church for over 50 years and tithes faithfully every week? Won't that earn her points before God, or was it all a waste of time? I love my grandmother. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. Won't God allow my loved one in heaven even if they haven't made a clear decision for Jesus or lived a life as a committed follower? Yeah, let's, you know. I have seen how answering these questions has divided people. Many families and friends, my family and friends, have divided over the answers to these questions. But does it matter? Do the answers to these questions matter? Or is peace and tolerance more important? Paul doesn't think so. He thinks he needs to give unvarnished truth to these guys. In fact, he always stated the hard truth. Look at 3. Uh, verse 2 and B. So he sent Timothy to exhort and establish them. Why? That no one be moved by afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. So here's what he's saying. Thessalonians, Christ is the way, and if you believe it's going to be hard, people are not going to like you. They're going to persecute you. Leave Paul, leave that out. Well, you leave that out because people won't come. That's a terrible way to get people saved, you know, that it's hard to be a Christian. That's a, that's a bad, bad sales point. It's not a good way to get people to follow you. Jesus said it like this in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me of peace in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus never gave false promises. In this world you're going to have trouble. That's not a good way to tell people to follow you. Paul says true believers are destined. You could say, well, this is to the Thessalonians, true, 
It says it right there in verse 3. You yourselves are destined for affliction. Man, I don't like that. So it means God predetermined ahead of time that they will suffer. Why would Paul say this? Because it's true. Actually, it helps people hang in there. If you play, it's two-day practices, and you don't tell them you're going to run, and you're going to be in the hot weather, and you're going to be yelled at by the coach, and little Johnny shows up, and you're running in hot weather, and the coach yells at you. Mom, you said it would be so much fun playing football. Why does he yell at me all the time? Hey, it's going to be hard. If you want to play, are you ready for this? I'm ready for this. Christianity is meant to be confrontational sometimes. Did you know that? Did you know that God wants you to die to sin? And it's going to be hard, and your friends might leave you. And you might be excluded. You might be kicked out. You guys still in for this game? It's funny. I heard preaching is like being a captain of a large sailing ship at sea. Imagine if a storm was to come and a wave started cresting over the bow and the sides of the boat and the storm was so bad it swept some people to their death and all the captain could do is say how nice the journey is. And oh, what a beautiful weather we're having. And isn't it great to be on the ship? You would say either the captain is stark raving mad or he's a bold-faced liar. One thing is for sure, you know he doesn't love the people on his ship because he's not telling them the truth. Pastors need to tell the truth. And if you watch TV, a lot of pastors aren't telling the truth anymore. You'll have everything you want if you believe in Jesus. Everything. Life will be great. Do you know why God allows suffering? To see who really are his. One commentator writes, a person's initial faith counts very little if that faith does not endure through thick and thin. In the Thessalonians, we're in the thick of it. We're going to talk about that next week. This passage even says how Paul was worried they'd be unsettled by trials. And if you notice, it says here in verse 2, we sent Timothy in verse 3 that no one would be moved. And that word moved in the Greek is interesting because sometimes it's used in classical Greek as when a dog is wagging its tail. And so there's some, what does that mean? And, I, and uh, some, some people believe that this is referring to sometimes non-Christians will. So you could say it like this. Here's how flattery works. There's two sides of the coin. Go to the next thing. Affliction will attack you in two ways. Based on what some scholars say with this word moved, is it will affect you by flattery. People will flatter you. They'll try to get you back, get you away from the church, get you, to, get you away from Christ by flattering you. Like I've had actually people say, Chris, I really admire your faith in Jesus, but you seem so much smarter than the rest of those foolish people that cling to their faith. You could accomplish so much, do so much other, many other things, make so much money if you weren't so attached to that weird church and those strange people who go there. It's what they're doing is they're flattering you to get you away from Christ. And I'm telling you, people flatter you. Oh, come join us, man. We have a great time. Not like those boring Christians. But then there's... What we're going to see next week is there's also, not just flattered, but people will be battered. Affliction proves your love. Is it worth the cost? Because what you pay the most for means the most to you. So, the point is Satan will get you any way he can. 
And that's the truth. So conclusion. What is true love? How did I conclude it? Show my last slide. I don't know what it says. All right. Conclusion. <laughs> See how polished I am here? Ask yourself, do you love others to the point that you get actively involved in their lives? Do you tell people about Christ or do you stay silent because you'd rather be liked than loved? Does the love of God compel you to stay even if others go? Do you love Jesus? Do you even care? Because true love cares. 